Amen. Well, as many of you know, we don't own this building. We lease this building. We actually lease this building from the Episcopal Diocese of Newark. And every once in a while, they come up. And they actually came up this week. The property manager came up and looked at the building. And he gave me a knowing look, and he said, how is it on Sunday morning? It's getting hot? I said, yes, it's hot. It's been hot ever since we moved in here. He says, funny story. When they built this building, I asked them how they were going to air condition it. And many, many years ago, the gentleman who was building the building said, oh, we don't have to worry about that. We're in the mountains. All we do is open the windows. And he said, way back when, let me know how that works out for you. And I think we are the ones that are actually feeling the weight of that, right? The, the, the one man who made that decision, right, now we are kind of paying the price for that. There are things, there are formative times when people who have gone before us bring about the reality in which we live in every single day. How many times in our work days or our projects around the house we come upon something that we just can't change because whoever did that before us it's there. It's an undeniable reality. The spiritual parallel here is something we struggle with every single day, which is sin. Sin and its effects have been in the world since shortly after creation, and we deal with its effects every single day. Where did sin come from, and why? And is there any hope of changing the reality of sin that we live with? And as we'll see this morning, Paul says, in fact, sin came from one man. But the hope of changing the reality of sin also comes from one man. And so if you're not there already, head over to Romans chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we thank you for that. Welcome. We are uh, going through the book of Romans, Paul's uh, kind of uh, tome, if you will, kind of encyclopedia of the gospel, mining its depths last week. We wrapped up Paul's defense of justification by faith with his further explanation of the blessings of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice demonstrates God's extraordinary love. It ensures our future salvation and it makes reconciliation with God possible. What should all of those blessings, as we think about everything that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, what should that produce in us? It should produce in us many things. But we said last week, maybe... Primarily joy. Joy comes through Jesus, through the work that he has done for us on the cross. This week, Paul gives us some encouragement from the reality of what Jesus accomplished for us in light of the hopelessness of our sin. And let's look at our passage again in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And for indeed, or sin indeed, rather, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. He says, sin came into the world through one man, and death through that one Sin. The consequences that every human being now is hopelessly dead in our sin. If you feel like verse 12 is an incomplete sentence, a lot of Bibles just have that big M dash afterwards where it's just like, what happened? Well, Paul had one of his patented squirrel moments where he was thinking about something and then got distracted by something else. 
He was thinking in, in chapter 5, verse 12, thinking about the sacrifice of Christ versus sin, and then in, went on this little two-verse sidetrack about sin itself. He will come back around. Don't worry. He usually does that. Right? First of all, who is this one man that Paul here is talking about? As we saw as John read the passage, it says clearly that it is Adam. Adam, the one man, being the first human being created by God, was also the first one to sin. But this sin, being who Adam was, was not just like anyone else that sins. It had a massive implication on, on us because he was the first person, the first human being. And in order to understand this, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And let's read about the fall. Page 3 on my Bible. Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave it to her husband who was standing there doing nothing. Sorry, <clears throat> I wrote that in there. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But when the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The fall into sin, the fall of humanity. And, and you might be thinking as we read this, well, Pastor Mike, why is it Adam that sinned? It looked like Eve was the one who created this mess and then Adam was standing there. But if we look in that passage that we just read, who does God call for the account? He calls Adam. That's not because Adam is more important than Eve. It's not because men are superior to women, but Adam was created first and then Eve, as we see in 1 Timothy, establishing roles and order in marriage and in the church. And so men are the spiritual leaders. It's kind of like if we reduce it well, way down. If you have two kids and one of them's like two and the other one's like 10 and you hear this crash and something breaking downstairs, right? You're not going to ask the two-year-old what happened. You're going to ask the 10-year-old. And probably then you're still not going to find out what happened. Right? The idea is that men are the spiritual leaders. And Adam, in this case, completely punted. He was standing there. First of all, there should never have been a serpent in the garden in the first place. It should have been missing a head with a shovel if they had a shovel back then. But he also certainly should have stopped his wife from falling for the lie that Satan gave. The lie that they, were, they would be like God. 
They would know good and evil. You didn't need God over you with all his rules. You're the ones that can make up your own minds. And indeed, that lie is perpetuated every day all around us. But Adam was not only responsible for Eve. Adam was responsible for all of us, and he failed. Adam being the first human being. He was our father. He was the representation of the entire human race. Theologians call him the federal head. So when he sinned, that sin spread to all of humanity in our nature, in our human nature. And death spread because of that sin. Genesis 3 tells us, and Paul affirms in our passage today, the concept and doctrine of original sin. Where sin started, but more so the consequence for all of us. One theologian put it this way, original sin does not refer primarily to the first or original sin committed by Adam and Eve. Original sin refers to the result of the first sin, the corruption of the human race. Original sin refers to the fallen condition in which we are born into. So Romans 5.12, church, is a massively important verse for our theology. You need to know how sin came into the world and what that means for all of us. It goes right back to the related question that we've talked about a few times. Are people born basically good or are we born sinful? The world will say that people are born good, that every single human being is born good. And whether it's through oppression or whatever else, policies, government, whatever, their, their life being brought up, background, whatever, that that has made them bad. But the Bible has a completely different worldview and says, ever since Adam, sin has infected all of us. And back in Romans chapter 5, Paul supports that. It's also interesting to note that Paul obviously thinks that the Genesis account was factual. The whole Bible tells one story, church. We can't just pick out the parts that we don't understand or that seem contrary to us. Let's read this section again in Romans 5 to, to bring us back up to speed. The first two verses, three verses rather. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through that one man, right? We just read that. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. In verse 13, he interrupts his thought with a, a for, a because. He wants to prove his biblical assertion for the origin of sin and its consequences that have been unleashed on humanity by Adam. He says, the fact is, sin has been in the world since actually before the law was given. And it's a little complicated, right? But Adam was, was created, right? Adam sinned. We fell into sin, and then Adam's sin infected all of humanity. But the law wasn't given for another couple hundred years. And so, was it not actually sin until the law came into effect? And no, not in that sense, because we know, of course, Adam and Eve were held responsible for their sin in the garden. We know that Cain was held responsible for killing Abel. We know the, the uh, Tower of Babel. People were held responsible for that. The whole reason for God's judgment, backing up a little in Genesis, and the flood was sin. So sin existed and was punished by God, but once the law was given hundreds of years later, it was counted, it was imputed in a different way. Before that, you just had the knowledge of God, the understanding of, of who God was as you understood him, right? Really, the authority of him as king. 
But when the law was given, now you had God's explicit instructions to us. And so therefore, if you violated those explicit instructions, it's counted to you, or as King James Version says, imputed to you in a different way. After the law was given, it is imputed to us against that law. Verse 14 says clearly the effects of sin, even before the giving of the law, is death. Death reigned, he said, from the time of Adam up until Moses. And he uses Moses as shorthand there for the law. So death reigned in that period. He also says that death reigned over, watch this, everyone. Adam was a special case. When he sinned as our representative, our federal head, it infected every single human being after them. When ordinary people said, that's what he says, even those who, who don't sin in that manner, when ordinary people sin, it doesn't have that effect, although our sin can certainly affect those around us, but it doesn't have the same effect that Adam did. The result for our sin still, thank you, Adam, is death. In other words, even for the rest of us after Adam, sin brings death. And so the first point is this. Sin has always produced death. Sin has always produced death. And you might be thinking, well, um, I know we might not know each other very well, but I've sinned a lot, and I'm not dead. Adam and Eve sinned right there, and God said, the day that you sin, you will die, and yet they were still breathing. Well, that's where we have to talk about the difference between spiritual death and physical death. Death isn't merely physical, but it's primarily spiritual first. In fact, the reason that we have physical death is because of spiritual death as a result of Adam's sin. Tom Schreiner writes this, physical death and spiritual death can't ultimately be separated since the former is the culmination and outworking of the latter. Many of us have grieved the death of loved ones, of friends and families. In every funeral that I officiate, I have to remind everybody that we're dealing with physical death because of the presence of sin in the world. Not that that particular person sinned in a certain way and that specifically caused their death, but generally, death is in the world because of sin itself. And we all enter this world spiritually dead and will one day physically die. The reality that we all will die one day is as a result of Adam in the garden. It's a result of sin being in the world. The hope of the new heavens and the new earth church is this. There will be no death. We will be returned to God's original state in the garden. Death will no longer reign. The reign of death will be over. Revelation 21 famously promises us that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We will all face death one day, church. But the hope of the believer is that death one day will not reign and will be no more. Sin and our enemy Satan wants to perpetuate death. It's how sin works, and it always works the same way. And in James chapter 1, he tells us about it. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, tells us how sin works. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, watch this, by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It always works the same way. 
And so why do we fall for the lie every single time? We have a sinful desire that wells up within our heart. It's not God that is tempting us to sin. He can't tempt because he is perfect. It's the remaining sin in our hearts that then wells up inside us and says, yes, actually, I do need that whatever. I need that extra drink, or I need that third helping of food, or I need to place my my security in my job or my bank account, or yes, I do need to lose it with my husband or my kids or my boss. And then we give in to that. That gives birth to action. And then ultimately, sin gives birth to death. So here's the question. Why mess with sin? Why live with it? Why perpetuate it? Why feed it? The end result is death. Spiritual death leads to physical death and being separated from God for eternity. So one application for us this morning is simply stop messing around with sin. Stop messing around with the sin that has created death in the first place. And if we don't repent of it and come to faith in Jesus Christ, we'll cause eternal death apart from Christ. The second application is this. The reality that we live in is death. Some of us try to ignore it or downplay it or marginalize it, but we would be wise to think and prepare for our own death. I know, not a very seeker, you know, not going to pack him in with that point, right? But the reality is, it's not morbid. It's preparing for reality. Part of the hard part of when I'm called into a funeral or someone dies is just the sheer unbelief that this happened, right? And of course, it is hard for us. We grieve, and I'm not taking anything away from that. But if we shelter ourselves from the reality of death for all of our lives and then it happens, it makes it so much harder to deal with the shock. Jonathan Edwards in resolution number nine says, resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstance which attend death. We would be wise to do that. Sin has always produced death. First a spiritual one, but a spiritual death then produces a physical death. Is there any hope then? Paul drops a hint of it in that last verse, in verse 14. He says, Adam was a type of the one to come. What does he mean? He will explain. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass, Much more, I'm sorry, so if many died through one man's trespass, much more will have the grace of God and the free gift of God that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We see Paul continuing to expand the vocabulary in which he talks about sin. In verse 14, he uses the word transgression. And now in verse 15, he uses the word trespass. They all mean sin. Sin being a transgression of God's law now that we have it violating his standard. And likewise, if you trespass, you are somewhere where you need not be. You are somewhere that it's unlawful for you to be. You've gone beyond a border or a boundary you should not. That is sin. That is trespass. What is completely like and yet not like is that Adam's original sin unleashed death on all of humanity in the sense that the one gift of Jesus Christ then also unleashed something on all of humanity. He unleashes life. He unleashes forgiveness. 
He unleashes hope. This is not the first time he's talked about this. Back in chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, there's our word, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What Christ gives us is a gift. Adam didn't give us a gift. Adam gave us a curse. But it's still one man that gave that one thing. Jesus Christ, the one man, then instead of giving us a curse, gives us a gift to be freed from that curse. The gift doesn't bring about the same result that the trespass, the sin that Adam did. Adam's sin, Paul tells us, brought condemnation. But the free gift in Jesus Christ brings, one of our favorite words from Romans, justification, declaring innocent of our sins. Adam's sin brought death and death reigned. But how much more, we remember that from last week, Paul's uh, a fortiori argument, right? That, that greater sense of it. How much more will then the grace of Jesus Christ through the gift bring life? What's the commonality in all this? Of course, it's, it's all one man's work. It's all one man's effect, Adam or Jesus. And Paul said in verse 14 that he was a type of the one to come. However, Christ was a much, much better and perfect Adam. In both ways, there's something reigning. Death reigns through Adam, and life reigns through Christ. But who reigns? Look at verse 17 again. Death reigned because of Adam, but for those who receive the gift of justification by faith, they are the ones who will reign in life. And of course, theologians have spun around saying, well, is this a future reigning, or is this a current reigning? And of course, we do know, yes, eschatologically in the future, in the new heavens, in the new earth, yes, we will reign with Christ. We will have no more sin. But there's also the reality, church, that in the present, we can reign in life because Christ has defeated sin, meaning that you don't have to serve sin. I'm not saying that we'll be perfect because we know we never will be, but you don't have to live in bondage to sin. You can reign in life because death has been defeated by Jesus. Death's been defeated by the work of Jesus, the gift of God, and that church has tremendous effects on us today. And so the second point is this. God's gift in Jesus can bring life. Sin has always produced death, but God's gift in Jesus can bring life. Notice again the similarity and the difference both situations are the work of one man, Adam and Christ, but the two outcomes could not be more different. And therefore, we all end up in either one of those camps, not both. One study Bible put it this way simply, every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. There's no middle ground. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. First Corinthians, another one of Paul's letters he says this exact same thing, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, the whole Bible tells the same story, right? So as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam we all die, but in Christ we are all made alive. Alive. Jesus himself said in John 11 that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
we all should feel a certain bit of hopelessness, right, when we realize our position due to the original sin of Adam. Maybe a little bit of unfairness, too. I didn't sin. He sinned. Why is that on me? Well, it's on me because he was the first human being. That's why. He was the one who failed. And therefore, everyone after that is cursed. Everyone through DNA, through human nature is cursed, right? But we also should feel a little bit of that hopelessness. Well, if I'm born into this and I don't have anything that I can do to make it better, we should feel the weight of that hopelessness. That's the bad news of the gospel, which paves the way for the good news of the gospel and what Christ has given us. So the first obvious application here is this. Which federal head are you under? Which man are you under? Are you under Adam or are you under Christ? If you're in Adam still today, today is the day of salvation. Why would you wait any longer and remain under Adam and remain under the sentence of spiritual death leading to physical death? And so today, I would ask, why not repent and believe the gospel today? The forgiveness of your sin, you could be transferred into that kingdom. You could be transferred into Christ instead of remaining in Adam. But if you are in Christ, that word in is so important. It's the doctrine, right, of the union with Jesus Christ. You are united with Christ. You are secure. You have the Holy Spirit. You are freed from the prison of spiritual death and reign in life with Christ. And what does it mean for us who are in Christ? Maybe two other quick applications. First, you actually have the power through the union with the Holy Spirit in Christ to defeat sin in your life. You actually have that power. And again, I'm not going all Keswickian here and saying that you can actually achieve this level of perfect holiness because you will actually run across somebody who will believe that every now and then. That's not what I'm saying. It's impossible for us to be sinless while we're here. But it is also possible, watch this, for us to sin less. That should be the goal. We need to understand the doctrine of unity in Christ, right? In Adam, I am hopeless, but in Christ, I am full of hope, and I actually, yes, can kill that sin. In fact, killing sin is the path to true life today. Paul mentions it later on in Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, sin, in other words, watch this, you will live. You want the path to an abundant, joyful, fulfilling life? Now, today, kill sin by the power of the Spirit in you. That's what Paul's telling us. But a second application for us in Christ has to do with us reigning. As we said last week, God's kingdom cannot lose. God's kingdom is in effect right now. It is here. He has lots of rebel subjects in his kingdom that are warring against him, but he is still king of kings and lord of lords. We just sang it. He's alive and reigning on his throne today. And so there is a sense, church, that we are commissioned in that kingdom to go, to create, to raise kids, as we saw up here earlier, to do our jobs as those who are reigning with Christ in his kingdom. As dark as it gets, remember, God will have the victory. And you will have a share in those blessings. We've had some encouraging Supreme Court rulings this week. We pray for faithfulness in our daily lives. And we pray where there is sin and there are unbiblical things in our country. We pray that they are continued to be shot down. But we remember who is king of kings now. And we are reigning with him in a sense right now 
and will one day forever. This has tremendous effects on our evangelism, on our apologetics, right? We engage with the evils of this world all around us with confidence that the kingdom of God is with us and we cannot lose. And church, therefore, we should be bringing this life, right? As Paul said, we should be the aroma of life everywhere we go in every situation, in every job situation, every relationship, every good work. God's gift of Jesus can bring us life in the presence, but of course, there is more to this life, and that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul drops a therefore in verse 18, meaning he's continuing to build on everything that has come before him. For those of you who have been sitting on the edge of your chair waiting for him to finish the thought in verse 12, here it is in verse 18. Paul finishes his thought by summarizing what he's said so far. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, and when we talk about that one act, we mean the cross of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ. That one act then leads to justification and life for all men. We've got to pause here and chase away any notion of universalism here. Even though Paul says it leads to justification in life for all men, it does not mean that all men will automatically, and women, people, will be automatically justified. See everything we've been talking about in Romans, right? It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. It is only for those who profess faith. Verse 17 even made it clear to those who receive this. That's who it is. That's who that applies to. Paul uses another word to further prove his point, reiterating what he said to us so far. By one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, many were made sinners. And so by one man's obedience, meaning Jesus, many will be made righteous. We think about the importance of what Jesus came to do and how he did it perfectly and how for us, right, where one man failed, Jesus succeeded. And he is our justification. And Paul brings in the law again, picking up again where he left off earlier in the passage and says something contrary to what traditional Jewish interpretation would be. Traditional Jewish interpretation would say, you want life? Follow the Torah. That's what you have to do. The more you obey the Torah, the more life you will have. And Paul actually says, guess what? The more you try and obey the Torah, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the worse your sin is going to get. The more offense your sin will be, meaning you're just making it worse. And I didn't write a third point in your outlines, and so for those of you who have gone online and cheated and written down the outline, I'm going to give you a third point, and here it is. The law only increases the offense of sin. The law only increases the offense of sin. How? And I think there's some application for us here. And I'm indebted to biblical scholar Douglas Moo for his thoughts on this. Four ways that the law increases sin in quick application for us. The first way is temptation. We've talked about this before. Parents, you know this, right? You aren't going to leave the room. You tell your child, don't touch that. I'll be right back. What's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to touch that. Same thing Paul says in Romans 7, right? Do not covet. So therefore, what do I think about? Well, what, I sh- what should I covet? 
The law awakens this temptation in us. And so for application, what things has God forbidden in his law that you are tempted to violate today? Where are you tempted to trespass where you shouldn't? So the first way the law makes the offense of sin worse is temptation. The second way is legalism. We are tempted to think that just because we can check certain boxes on the law that we have assurance of God's favor, that we are good to go, that maybe we have salvation because we obey certain things. But we know, of course, salvation cannot come by the law because we've already broken it. And so application for legalism, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Where are you quick to drift into for assurance of your salvation? So that you go to church every week? Is that you're a better person than your neighbor? Is that you give money to the church, that you do nice things? That's drifting into legalism, and the law makes that offense worse. The third way the law increases the offense is conviction. This is the mirror, right? We look into the perfect standard of God's law, and we realize that we break it. That's the mirror effect of the law. That's the way God has designed it as well. And so we realize and we feel that in our soul as we think about the law, right? The law increases the offense of sin because we feel it ourselves, because we know that we have failed. And so what do we see in the mirror of God's law looking back at us? Here's a question. Where is your conscience not giving you rest? What's that one thing that God continues to needle at you about, making the offense of sin worse through conviction. The fourth way the law increases sin is severity. God has given us a standard and we've broken it, we've transgressed it. We have sinned against a perfectly holy God and we are in the path of his legit wrath. And so this is the the spiritual reality that is all around us that nobody wants to think about, right? The reality that yes, there is a God Yes, he is good and perfect and he's internal and he does know your heart and he does have a standard and you did violate that and that is not just like sinning against your neighbor. That is like sinning against God himself. The holy, holy, holy God on the throne. So think about the severity of which our sin is actually an offense to God. And once again, that's the bad news of the gospel that gives way to the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. Sounds kind of hopeless at times though. That the law only increases the offense of the sin. It's hopeless until we see how Paul resolves this. Look at verse 20 and 21 again where he summarizes, the law increased the offense, but watch this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It gets better, he says. How much more, again, his, his favorite argument. No longer is death reigning, but guess what? Grace is reigning. And we're headed not for eternal death, but for eternal life. Once again, we're backed to grace, the gift of God in Christ Jesus. And where it is grace versus the law, guess what? Grace always wins because of Jesus Christ. Actually, not just any grace, but abounding grace. Did you see that in verse 20 where Paul says that? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Some theologians call this the superabounding grace of God. Think about how big sin is, and hopefully the, the use of the law and the other things made us realize a little bit more about how bad sin is and how much of an offense it is, right? Think about the grace of God then bounding over that. Superabounding grace of God. 
We've been freed from Adam's prison and we're transferred into the kingdom of light and life in Jesus Christ. And so big idea, simple this morning. Sin brought death, but grace brings life. Sin brought death, but grace brings life. We have physical death in our world as the inescapable reality of spiritual death. Adam fell first as our federal head, and so sin and death spread to all men, and unfortunately, sin has always produced death, and it's going to continue to. But Adam was a type of the one to come. There would never be another man, though God himself in Jesus was truly man and truly God. He came, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where Adam once brought that sin and death, Christ brings reconciliation and life and justification. God's gift in Jesus can actually bring us life. And of course, that's through faith. So Christians, church, are we living in this life that Christ brings us through his super abounding grace? Or are we still claiming to be in Christ, but touring the ruins of Adam and his sin? Are you living in the effects of Adam's sin Or are you living in the effects of the superabounding grace of Jesus Christ? God has a standard, his law. He will judge the world still by his law. The law only serves to increase the offense of sin through temptation, legalism, conviction, and severity. Are we heeding the purpose of the law in letting it drive us to the hope of the gospel? That's the thing. Whenever you preach the law, you can't preach the law and stop there. You have to let the law drive you to the gospel. Yes, we can't be saved by the law. Yes, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we have the gospel. The law points to the gospel. Sin brought death. Grace brings life. In other words, grace wins. If you write one thing down this morning or just remember it, remember that. Grace wins. Listen, there is no sin that is too great. There is no rebellion against God that is too great that the superabounding love and grace of Jesus Christ cannot cover. And some of us walk around with great guilt, feeling of our sin, remembering, how could God love me? How could he ever accept me? Through superabounding grace. Through the grace, as the old hymn says, that is greater than all our sin. You cannot, church, out-sin the grace of God. It's impossible. Whatever sin you have, he can't cover it in his superabounding grace. And so, church, we must realize where death came from, original sin. We must live like those who have been redeemed by the superabundant grace in lives of gratitude and grace. And we remember that in the end, that grace is greater than all our sin. Father, we pray for this to be a reality in our hearts We pray that we would walk in this, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts to believe this, that you would impress this upon our souls. That, Lord, if there are those here today that are still in Adam, that are still stuck in the kingdom of darkness and death and sin, that you would open their eyes to the reality of that one man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, what he accomplished, and that he would bring life. Father, help us maybe for those in Christ, to appreciate, to walk out of here a little bit more, the grace. When we see the sin that abounds, may we realize that God's grace abounds all the more in Christ Jesus. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.